Y'all, yeah, most people are seated. Go ahead and, and sit. <laughs> sometimes we stand for this part, sometimes we don't. Y'all sit. That was, and thank y'all very, very much. Um, Adrian, come on up. Um, sorry, man, that was, y'all, are, they just led us very, very well this morning um, to get us ready uh, for this, and I'm not even sure I want to preach right now. <laughs> Uh, this is Adrian uh, Pedersen. We're actually going to tag team this reading because I'm going to read from Acts 2 and then she's going to read from 2 Timothy 3. Uh, and Acts 2, this passage that I'm about to read is kind of an anchor passage for the next uh, two, three weeks. Uh, and then we're going to be jumping into some more specific texts in different parts of the Bible to kind of tease that out, all right? So this is Acts 2, 42 through 47, and then Adrian's going to read after that. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word of our Lord. Thanks. All right, so I said when I was calling us to worship that we're spending the month of January, and it's actually going to creep into February now because of the snow week, recasting uh, vision for our church, re-remembering what in the world we're actually gathering to do when we gather here on Sunday mornings and in small groups, what we're doing as a church. And I, I decided to uh, title this series DTR, uh, if you were here the first week, uh, define the relationship, right? All of us have been in awkward DTR moments in our lives, but our heart and our passion and really our challenge for our community this year is to do that, is to DTR, and in, the, and in some really specific areas. Would we be those who would define our relationship to the Lord? Would we not live in a vague, uncommitted relationship to the Lord, but define our relationship to the Lord, define our relationship to His body, the church? And will we allow those two primary relationships, our relationship to Him and our relationship to one another as the church, actually allow those two key relationships to begin to shape our relationships to the world that He's placed us in, all right? Our relationship to our friends, our relationship to our families, maybe if your parents, to your kids, to your coworkers, to us just as people who are citizens of the city of Nashville. Would our relationship to the Lord and our relationship to His, his body, the church, would that begin to define our relationship to the world He's placed us in? And why, why I'm pushing us hard on this, why, what's the reason behind DTRing like that? What's the primary reason? It's this, that we were not meant to, we were not created to, we were not saved to live in a vague or undefined relationship to the Lord because that is not the kind of relationship that He lives in with us. He does not live in a vague, undefined relationship. 
He lives in a very defined relationship to you and to me and to His body, the church. And it's defined, it's marked by one of the primary markers of this that defines our relationship to Him and His relationship to us is His self-emptying, steadfast love. Listen to this in John, this is 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. That's a pretty defined relationship. I love you so much that I am willing to lay down my life for you. But listen to how he goes on to say that defines our relationship to one another. And we ought lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. See it? His love, his devotion, his defining the relationship by his love and devotion to us, it shapes us. It shapes our loves. It shapes our devotions. And it defines our relationships to one another here in the church and to the world. So what marks, what are the marks that should define us as a church? What marks should define the relationship? And we're spending time, I just read from Acts, we're spending time looking at four specific marks of devotion that define the life rhythms of the early church in Acts. Now, early church, it was a, a spirit-born church, it was a spirit-filled church, church, but it says there in Acts 2.42, they, they devoted themselves to a few key things, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread and prayer. That word for devoted literally is the word for they steadfastly or they continually gave themselves over to these things time and time again. And those four devotions, and we're going to kind of unpack these throughout these next few weeks, those four things, practices, or you maybe call them habits of their heart that reshaped their hearts. Those things matured them in their relationship to their Lord, to His love for them, to their love for one another, and what it led to was a remarkable love for the world around them. This early church was a church that the fruit of that early church was where people that had come to faith, it says there that they were, there were numbers being added daily to this church. People were finding the way that this church lived in the love of God and loved one another was so attractive that they said, you must know something that we don't know. The fruit of this church was incredible acts of service and incredible acts of generosity and social concern. They were more concerned, not just for people within the church, they were socially concerned for everybody, taking care of people who weren't even their own. This church was a church that was marked by a deep abiding joy and gladness that marked their life. So these devotions, these things that we're going to talk about and unpack over these next few weeks, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer, they were critical for this church and for their life. And I would argue that they are just as critical for us because these devotions that define their relationships and define their experience of their relationship with God these devotions brought them into an ongoing and fresh experience of God's deep and unchanging devotion to them. They didn't devote the, themselves to these things to prove to God that, hey, God, we're devoted to you. They devoted themselves to these things because in doing these things, they were brought back into the proof of his devotion to them. You see the difference? These devotions help them, like John 15, Jesus commands, remain in me, remain in my love from you, because apart from me, you can't do anything. These devotions help them remain 
and his love for them or to stay in step with the spirit by which they now lived, which is what Galatians 5 says. Stay in step with the spirit because you live by the spirit. Stay in step with it. So we're looking at these devotions of the early church in Acts, and I'm asking us as a church this year, would you commit to these rhythms, to these defined practices and embrace them for our life as a church, for your life? Because if we do, and I believe this, I believe this is true for them, and I believe it's true for us, it's in practicing these things together that we actually will experience deepen our experience of what we have and share in Christ. And when that happens, it spills out into the world around us. So what would it look like? What would it look like for you? What would it look like for us to continually give ourselves over to these things, to be steadfastly devoted to these things? Well, here's the first one. Devoted to the apostles' teaching. It said there in Acts, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which for our context today, right, is effectively saying they were devoted to gathering to be taught or exposed to God's Word regularly. Remember it said that they daily, I mean, everything was, it certainly wasn't nearly as mobile of a culture as the one that we live in today, Right? They were daily gathering in the temple courts. They were daily gathering in one another's homes. They were gathering to be taught and exposed to God's word regularly. They were devoted to God's word in that way. So for us, this morning, I want you to stop and I want you to consider, I want you to be honest with yourself, be, be real. What relationship do I have to God's word? And is it defined clearly? Like, how would you describe your relationship to God's Word? Is it vague? Is it, is it inconsistent? Is it occasional? And I'm not asking you that to shame yourself. That's not what we're doing here this morning. But we can't, if we're not aware of kind of where we're at, we don't really know where, where God could take us, right? So let's just be honest. Is my relationship to His Word defined clearly? Because for the early church, for the Acts church, they had a very clearly defined relationship. And it was a critical ingredient, I would argue the critical ingredient, gathering often around God's word to be taught it, to learn, is what made their fellowship with one another so rich. It was what made their communion with one another and their prayer life and their social concern life and their generosity life. It's what made it dynamic. Devoted to being taught and retaught and gathered around God's word, intentionally setting aside time for it, to continue to allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to shape and reshape and reshape their life. That's why I asked Adrian to read the passage from 2 Timothy, because we can get a little fuller, maybe better picture of what was so important and what was so vital. Because what Paul is encouraging Timothy in his letter to him is the very same thing. It's about the church's relationship, his personal relationship, but the church's relationship to God's word and their ongoing need to be formed by it. What does he say right there in verse 14? But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, 
because you know those from whom you learned it. So people taught it to him, right? People taught it to him, but he had to continue in what he has learned and become convinced of. Just think about that. I've got to continue in something that I've actually already learned and I've already become convinced of. That word continue in the original language is literally the word abide. Abide in the word, or maybe a better word would be dwell. Paul in Colossians 3 says that, let the, let the word of God dwell in you richly. It's like having a house guest. Think about it in those terms. Have you ever, I was thinking about this the other day, I, I think my, one of my sons said this, they came in and they said, they, I had been over at Hal and Tiffany's house and they said, you smell like the Garrett's house, right? Because our houses smell like something because we live in them, Right? That's the picture there. Let, let the Word of God literally become a house guest so that you begin to smell like the aroma of who is dwelling in you. Continue in that. Abide in that. Because the truth is, is we need to, even if we've become convinced of it, even if we've learned it, we need to hear it again and again, don't we? We don't get it the first time, and it's not something that you get one time. Like a lot of people, sometimes this happens to small group, people will say like, man, I've read that a million times before and I've never seen that before. That's because you're not the same person as the person who read it the first time. The Word of God does not change, but you are in a different situation, even if it's just three months from now, and God may actually, by His Holy Spirit, want to apply His Word to you in this moment, and you're reading the very same thing you read three months ago. You're not the same place every time you approach it. And God's word is not something like learning, just information to be taken in, but it's rather, it's something that continually forms us. It's not information, it's formation when we come to it. The word of God in the hands of the Holy Spirit shapes our lives like clay. If you've ever done pottery before, if you've ever you know, been working on a pot and you're actually kind of getting it to a certain point, and then all of a sudden everything breaks down, right? And you kind of, kind of press it back down and start over again. That's a lot like life. Life's kind of going along, something beautiful's happening, something beautiful's happening, and blah, right? Okay, Lord, how does your word then shape me and reshape me again? When we come to his word, it makes us into the likeness of Jesus. It makes us, us, not just individually, us, into the people of God, His body, citizens, Scripture says, of a different kingdom, who live in the world with a unique sense of hope, a unique sense of perspective, a unique sense of purpose because of who we belong to. We live and love differently because He lives and He loves us, and He's given us His Word to bring us into a deep experience of that. What are some of the things, we'll just look I could, man, there, we could preach like 10 sermons out of 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. I was thinking about, you remember Flex Seal? Who's used Flex Seal in here? Yeah. You guys don't know what Flex Seal is? The guy that like the spray rubber, you know, it's like, here it is on your gutters. And what does he always say in the commercial? Like Flex Seal started off by like spray rubber. And now he's got this giant line of products. The Flex Seal family of products, I believe is what it's called right? And what he's trying to prove with Flex Seal is, is there's infinite applications for this stuff, 
It's not just useful for this, it's useful for this, right? Like, you can cut out the bottom of your John boat and put a screen door on it and then paint it with Flex Seal and then you just have a boat. I don't know why you would do that because you already had a boat that worked fine. You don't need to put a screen door on the bottom of it, but infinite applications. Like, the catch line in his thing, or in his commercials is, but wait, there's more. That's actually pretty good for Scripture, too. But wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. What, what are some of the things just in this one passage? He says, first off, it makes us wise for salvation. You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. What does that, what does that mean? Wise for salvation. Well, it is, it is simply saying, it's, it's saying something very profound in a very short sentence. It's saying that what is contained in Scripture is sufficient revelation for who God is, who Jesus is, and what Jesus accomplished through his life and his death and resurrection and all of that and what that means for you and I, and how through the Holy Spirit we are given what 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4 says, in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So to make us wise for salvation, oftentimes people think, okay, I understand the Bible explains how you, how you become saved, right? And that is true, but it's more than that. Your salvation is more than that. Your salvation just doesn't have future implications for when you get to heaven. Because what 1 Peter says there is, is that you actually have an inheritance now that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. Our salvation brings with it an inheritance. It's kept in heaven for you, but because of the Holy Spirit, which you have as a seal and a deposit, and Scripture calls the first fruits, it's actually a way that you can borrow from that inheritance, that future hope, peace, confidence, assurance, you bring that down into the present. Our, our son Hudson, we got him when he got to high school, we got him a, a, a debit card because he walks around now and does things with his friends and goes to Martin's and buys wings and needs money to do that, right? The other day I asked him, I said, you got money? You got any money in your car? And he's like, yeah, well, my, uh, my pen, my pen's been messed up for like a month. I'm like, so what have you been doing for him? I was like, oh, my friend, I've been bumming money off my friend. And I'm like, well, how much money do you have in there? He's like, well, I've got plenty of money in there. I just can't access it. It's a good picture. Because it, it doesn't matter that he has the inheritance, right? It doesn't matter that he has the money. If he has not got access to the inheritance, it's as though he does not have it. Most people don't have a relationship with the word and therefore have no ability to access the inheritance in the presence. Like there is no early withdrawal fees for this, y'all, you know? We're not, we're not, I don't know, if you pull on that, it's going to actually like lessen it in the future, right? You're, you're pulling from an unlimited inheritance and there are no penalties. You can bring the hope and the peace, and the joy, and the assurance, and the comfort of eternity into the presence, and He has given you His Word to do that. His Word plus the Holy Spirit, that's the PIN number. It's the ATM, literally, of God's wealth. Are we withdrawing? I 
makes us wise for salvation. It makes us wise in our salvation. Right? Secondly, man, there's a lot to say about this. God's word is what? All scripture is God-breathed, he says, and useful for something. Useful, present tense, useful right now. God-breathed, which is, yes, it is testifying, and we could talk about this, but I'm not going to say a whole lot about it. It's testifying to its authenticity as that God gave it. It came from him, it was from him, and its authority. It comes from God himself, and therefore all other wisdom, all other human wisdom is subservient to God's wisdom, to God's word. So yes, God-breathed means it's authentic, it's from him, and it's authoritative, it's from him. But God-breathed evokes more than just authenticity and authority. The word authority has the word author in it. I would literally challenge you to think of it like this. God is authoring a story here. Acts 17 says this, that God himself gives man life and breath, and everything else. So God breathed. Yes, it's authentic. Yes, it's authoritative. But what he's saying here too is this. It's wind in your lungs. It's literally him breathing into you. It's soul CPR. It's wind in your lungs. It's, it's dynamic life. Have you ever had the wind knocked out of you? It's been a little while since that's happened. It's scary when you get the wind knocked out of you because you're, you're literally, there's nothing you can do, right? You're just kind of waiting until you actually catch your breath. Most people who have lived through the last three years not under a rock have had the wind knocked out of them weekly, if not daily. God's word being God-breathed. Is he saying, when the wind is knocked out of you, you need me to breathe life into you. When we hear God breathe, when they would have heard God breathe, let me tell you what they would have thought of. God breathed would have taken them all the way back to the creation account in Genesis 2. That's where their minds would have gone when they heard that phrase, God breathed. And what's in Genesis 2? This is where God literally created man. It said he formed man from dust, right? So don't think too highly of yourself, right? We're just dust. And there was no life in the man until what? Until he breathed, it says there, Scripture, he breathed life, the breath of life into him. There's no life without the breath. When it says here that, that God's word is God-breathed, it's God's word, which is applied by the Holy Spirit. It's literally him saying, he's breathing new life into you through his word. Without it, you are just dust. Without it, we're dust. So when it breathes, when God says it's God breathed, he's saying, I am recreating you through my word. Just like I did in the creation count, when I breathe life into Adam, I am breathing life into you and I'm giving you new life because I know that sin has affected you so deeply. It's it's birth death in you. You need this life. And this is pure oxygen. God breathed his word and he breathes into us through his word. One of my mentors, Irish guy, you've heard me say this probably a million times at this point, but I'm going to say it again. John Moxon. A few people in this room have actually met John Moxon. Old 
looks like Alfred Hitchcock did youth ministry. It's like you're the most irrelevant human for youth in the world. And yet God used him to shape a lot of kids' lives in Northern Ireland and affect me. And he used to say to me all the time, he'd grab my face and oh, David, David. He goes, it's not black ink on white pages, David. It's my living Jesus. It's my living Jesus. And I remember being like 20 and going like, you're touching my face and that's weird. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Just literally thinking, you know something about Jesus that I don't know. Something about your relationship to his word. It's not black ink on white pages. This is not information. This is God himself breathing CPR, oxygen into your life. And when do we need oxygen most? I mean, we need it when life's hard, when we get the wind knocked out of it. The church at this time was facing so much difficulty, and it was literally, the word was like the ventilator. We hear all about ventilators right now, right? It was the ventilator for them that actually put the truth back into them to face what they were facing. Like in an airplane, when the, you know, the masks drop, right? Has anybody been in an airplane when the masks drop? No. Okay. I was like, please let there be somebody because I want to talk to somebody about this. I mean, we, you see the, you know, they talk about it all the time, you know, do the whole routine and we're all like not paying attention. We're on our phones or something like that, right? But that would be terrifying, right? And the only time the masks drop, like the masks don't drop unless something really bad is happening. The cabin has lost pressure. It means that the airplane is probably going to be in a rapid descent. And what do they tell you to do? Put your mask on, and if you have a child, what? Put, put, no, put your, (laughs) yes, you put your mask on first, and then you put your child's mask on, right? The problem is, is that we all think we're adults, but we're not. We're the kids. And God's word, literally in the hand of the Holy Spirit, is like daddy putting the mask on us, saying, Okay, I'm breathing. This is what I breathe. (laughs) This is what you need to breathe. And remember when they say, uh, they always say this, and I think this is so interesting. I hadn't thought about this until yesterday. Hey, don't worry if the bag doesn't fully inflate. Oxygen is still coming through. You guys remember that? I think a lot of the reason we don't come to God's word is as we expect some dynamic experience of God's word We expect that if I put the mask on, the bag will fully inflate, and I'll see and know exactly what I'm getting. But they have to remind us on the airplane, hey, you're getting oxygen even though you don't even know what's going on. What does that translate for us? When we come in here this morning, some of you are going to leave this morning and go, well, that was really kind of good, this sermon's okay, you know? Uh, You know? And it is just okay sometimes. It's not great. But you don't know what God's going to do with that. You don't know what oxygen is getting into you. You don't know what, when you just open up your Bible and spend time in it and it doesn't seem meaningful, what God is putting into your life. That's why David says, I've hidden thy word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's already in there so that when sin comes, I've actually got access to it. So even if it's not inflating me every time I go to church, I don't see the dynamic moment. God is doing something through his word. So I have to have that mask on 
And just trust me, I wish I could say more about this. We are invited to put the wrong mask on. Like many days, I grab my phone to deal with the turbulence of life, and I put that over my mouth, and I try to breathe in, or I, I run to something. Everyone puts on, their, on some mask to get some air to deal with life's turbulence. I don't know what it is for you, but you're putting some mask on. And for me, the phone, here's what the phone gives me. This is what I breathe. Envy, fear, comparison, greed, lust. That's not oxygenization. Is that even a word? Someone, what's the word I was looking for there? It is a word. Thank you. It's asphyxiation, right? It's asphyxiating. So God's Word makes me wise for salvation. God's Word is God-breathed. God's Word, it says here, is like a personal trainer. I've seen ads all the time, New Year, right? Looking for 10 guys who want to transform their bodies. I, yeah, sign me up. What's true is, is what? They know you need a trainer and you need other people. I mean, second, people who don't even believe in God get this. You need a Mr. Miyagi who can train you in righteousness, train you in the righteousness you already have in Christ. Not train you just to be a right person, train you in the righteousness you have already. You hear that? We need to actually have a trainer to have spiritual fitness to grow in the gospel, grow in the righteousness that we already have. So it makes us wise, it's God-breathed, it's a personal trainer. And then lastly, God's Word does the spiritual surgery that we need. You and I need to go under the knife daily, weekly. That's why when Peter is preaching in Acts, it literally says, Peter's sermon in Acts is just basically telling them, you're the one who killed God. And it said that they were cut to the heart. And they said, what should we do? Peter was teaching him the truth about who Jesus was, and it penetrated, it cut to the heart, because that's what God's Word does. That's why He gave it to us. Hebrews 4 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to divide soul and spirits, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. You hear it? It's a scalpel. Cutting the heart, uncovering the heart, Showing the parts of the heart that are still living in the old self and in the flesh. He's saying, i got to cut that cancer out because that's not who you are, child. This is who you are. That's why 2 Timothy says you've got to have training, but you also need teaching, rebuking, and correcting. Rebuking and correcting. I mean, we hear that and we're like, there's no shame in that. Scripture's saying that's necessary. I need rebuked. I need corrected. Discipline is an act of love by God, Hebrews 12 says. He only does it for the sons and daughters that he loves. And through that discipline, he does this, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'm doing this to equip you for your life, for how to parent your kids, for how to interact with a coworker who drives you crazy and you have a hard time loving. Maybe you have a hard time loving you. Because you don't live up to your own expectations, and you're disappointing you, but Jesus is not disappointed in you. And He wants you to live in the salvation you have, not live believing you could earn something to prove to Him that you are something. 
how the early church continued in what they learned and had become convinced of, first and foremost, is they kept coming back again and again to the Holy Scriptures, to the apostles' teaching, knowing that it was only in God's Word and through God's Word that they were going to be loved into God's way of their life. Woo, baby, we might have to cut a song. Because i got to get practical here for us for a second. The one thing I'm asking of you, uh, and I really mean this, the main ask for you this year is, is would you come to church? Be here on Sunday morning. I mean, we could talk about the Sabbath uh, and, and the, the what, what was the Sabbath for, you know, man for the Sabbath, or did God give the Sabbath for the man? But would you organize your life to make worship, to be taught by God's word, a priority for you and for your family? Would you devote yourselves to gathering around the apostles' teaching? Because here, I hope you'll, you've witnessed this, you'll continue to, we don't preach our ideas about life. We don't preach the latest philosophies, the latest trends or theories. We preach and talk about and are committed to God's word as the only rule for faith and for practice. God's word with one another shapes our lives and our community. Now, I know what I just said, there's resistance to that. We got reasons we ain't here, right? And of course, some of them are totally legit. There's a lot of things that happen. But I just want to dip my toe in this one for a second. Man, I've got too much to say. Ah! We're in, a, we're in a time where being here or just taking it in digitally um, is, is an option, right? And I, I want to put this caveat on it. There are remarkable advances uh, and advantages to us that we have to engage with teaching and with content that generations before us never had. Trust me, there are a million better sermons and preachers you can go listen to than this guy. That's not what we're talking about here. But I, I just want to suggest something, that there are limitations in this unlimited format. There are limitations in the unlimited world of being able to take in everything however I want. Oh, man. I can't say all this. Do it. <laughs> First one, I'm always choosing what I listen to. Which means I'm self-led, not being led. Which means this, I reduce the challenge of being surprised and challenged by something I wasn't looking for. Because we all tend to listen to, to things that just reaffirm what we already think. And we don't tend to listen for the things that we may need to hear that we don't want to hear. 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes about this. For a time will come when people will not put up a sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. You hear the, you hear the warning there? All Scripture is God-breathed and useful not just the parts of Scripture that I want to consider, all of it. And I have to be careful that I'm not the one curating my playlist. So that's one. 
the danger of being the only person who chooses what they listen to. Secondly, our tendency to approach God's word as an individual and only receive and process it as an individual rather than as a part of something bigger than yourself. Because if you're a part of God's church, you're a part of a body, you're a part of a family, and you aren't meant to learn in a silo. You're meant to learn integrated within the context of a body. That's why it says they're thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every good work implies that I'm a part of something bigger than myself. There's work to be done that I need equipping for. So the second thing is our tendency to approach God's word just as an individual. Third thing, the difference between multitasking and giving something your full attention. I love to listen to stuff while I'm doing stuff. It's great. I'm going for a run. I'm going for this. It's not inherently bad, but it does limit our capacity to focus, to consider the ability for what I'm actually hearing to sink in. I had a roommate, Royce, uh, who I used to live with, and he used to catch me doing this all the time. He'd come home at the end of the day, and I'd be sitting there watching TV and sit down next to me, and he'd start telling me about his day, and he could tell when I drifted off and was watching TV. And he used to throw in things uh, like he said one time, he said, yeah, man, it's a you know, tough day. I did this and this. And he said, you know, and then I, I actually threw my secretary off the balcony at my office. And I, I literally was like, yeah, yeah. And he goes, dude, he goes, did you just hear what I just said? He said, I told you I just threw my secretary off the balcony. And I was like, what? He's like, are you listening to me? No, I wasn't. I was watching TV and acting like I was listening. You, know? you can't multitask and give your full attention. Third, fourth, the relationship between what we do with our bodies and its impact on our hearts and minds. I can tell when my wife hasn't worked out in a while. Because if she doesn't work out, it affects her emotionally, not just physically, spiritually. She feels it. Our bodies and our minds, they're, they're, they're tied together. Romans 12 says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve God's will. What is that saying? Our minds that need transformed, they live in our bodies. We, another way to say that is we have embodied minds. Therefore, what your body practices, your embodied mind is affected by. If I don't ever work out, I will get depressed. So if my body practices comfort, because that's one of the ways of the world, right? Comfortable, anything comfortable. If my body practices comfort, my embodied mind will follow suit. So if anything about my relationship with God or my relationship with God's people or even unbelievers feels uncomfortable, nope. You see? You see the connection? If I never physically get uncomfortable, do something that I don't want to do, then emotionally, spiritually, everything will just follow suit. That's why, you know, no pain, no gain, no train, no gain. There's a relationship between our bodies and our hearts and our minds. And then lastly, and this is just true, there's a mysterious way that a live interaction with other people is an experience that can simply not be had when you're alone. This is why people come to Nashville, right? Live music over just listening to the recording. People travel here because they want to be a part of being a part. 
Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't ex- important experiences to be had alone with the Lord. Of course, that's true. We'll talk about those in a couple of weeks. But God is uniquely with His people when they gather. So Matthew 18, 20 says, When two or more are gathered in my name, I am with you. God has things for us to experience collectively, and He has things for us to do collectively as His people, not as individuals, not just as families, things that take numbers, things that take interconnectedness. When they would gather to be taught It was actually just in the process of coming together. How do you think they knew about the needs that needed to be met? It was in coming all together that those needs were realized. It was being taught God's word where the Holy Spirit applied and said, you need to be the person to step into that need. So that's it. Vision one, would you devote yourself to being here every chance you can be? Would you prioritize this time? Would you DTR with worship? Gathered to be in his word, together to be taught, to be shaped, to be trained, to be rebuked, to be breathed into. Practically, too, will you follow up with people who aren't here, who you know are a part of this church? Nothing speaks more to people than when you're not seen, someone calls and says, hey, I missed you. I'm just checking in. I'm not shaming you. I'm just, everything cool. I haven't seen you in three weeks. Call, folks. If your kid was missing for five hours in the neighborhood, and you tracked him down and be like, what are you doing? You know, you'd be like, no, that's an act of love. So would you devote yourselves to being here? Would you devote to calling one another to be here? And then the last thing is this, would you get here on time? Here's why. People who visit, they're here on time. And when you're here on time, it, it's the easiest form of evangelism you can do. Just simply being here, because what you're saying by being here on time is simply saying this, this matters to me, and, and we want it to matter to you, and you matter to us. So even that, I don't know what the Lord's just done with what I taught. If you missed what they let us in to get us ready for what the Lord has taught, you missed something this morning. Worship isn't just my teaching. We're teaching when we're singing, all right? Now let's sing. I'm going to pray for it. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, wow. Okay. Matrix. Blah, blah, blah. Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that it, it is the flex seal, uh, but there's more, but wait, there's more, but wait, there's more. There's so much more. Forgive us uh, for turning a blind eye to us, to it. Uh, forgive us for putting on other oxygen masks. Teach us, Holy Spirit, convict us of the importance of this for ourselves, for our kids, Lord, Timothy was somebody who came to faith because of his grandmother teaching him the word. Lord, would we see it like that? Would it be our daily bread? Would it be our very life? Teach us to feed on it here as we worship. Teach us to be in it individually as small groups. Lord, thank you. Thank you that, you didn't, um, that you've given it to us. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness through your word and through yourself and your presence. In your name.